This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com. Revived Bots is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. We see that God worked here a strange and admirable change when he gave such boldness to Joseph and to Nicodemus, for they were not afraid of the rage of the mob when they came to bury our Lord Jesus. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Troy, today, we are, we are getting in our time machine, and we are going back to the 1540s, Geneva, Switzerland. We get out of our time machine, mm-hmm. and there we see John Calvin preaching the sermon that we're going to listen to today. We've been starting a new trend here of reading comments that we have on the episode as we put them out. So if you want to have your comment read, uh, post on one of our social media links, Facebook, uh, Twitter, wherever you, you find it. Um, this one came to us in one of our groups, and it said, uh, and I quote on this last episode that we did on John Wesley, Faith at Home, yep, dot, 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 not an ideal marriage, dot, 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 Leah Marie. Thank you for that very good, strong comment <laughs> on John Wesley's uh, episode, Faith at Home. We do think, I, I did want to point out to you, I do think it's funny that we're going from a John Wesley sermon to a John Calvin sermon in order so that you're getting really just both sides here. All the John's. thoughts. Hey, we got some Patreons to shout out as well. Man, th- th- thank you so much. People are signing up left and right. We have Ellen, Zachary, and Michael that have signed, signed up since our last episode. Um, thank you guys so much. We're going to get a bookmark signed and headed your way with our next batch that we send out. That is correct, Joel. And this sermon, you know, we did this last year where right before Easter, we put up a sermon called On the Passion of the Christ. And you're going to see that this sermon has the same name. You may be wondering, did we just copy and paste last year's sermon? We did not. In fact, that sermon he preached last year was the seventh in a line of eight sermons. This is the eighth one, the next one that comes after it. And, you know, maybe in future Easter's we'll go back. But I just think that these sermons are really, really good uh, so easy for us as Christians, I think, to hear the story of the cross, to hear what Jesus Christ did in that moment on Calvary. And sometimes we just get so used to hearing it that we kind of, you know, if let's be honest, it loses the passion of the moment. And these Calvin sermons do such a good job of being detailed and telling that story in almost a fresh way, in a way that I have not heard it done before with just incredible thoughts all the way through that I think it will get you very excited again to hear a story that, that that sometimes we take for granted. Yeah, John Calvin, a reformer of the, the 1500s. We're in the century of reformers here. John Calvin fits snugly into some mm-hmm. of the fathers of what we think of, you know, uh, Protestantism and the Great Reformation. As a reminder, as a refresher, John Calvin born in 1509 in France. And his father, who was a tough man, worked very hard to get him a job in the Catholic Church, to get him, you get his foot in the door in the Catholic Church. This is an era where the Catholic Church was... That, that, that's what had power. That's what had promise. That has had future. In a world of peasants where no one had any power, the church was a place where someone could 
be something. It's like it's like a father trying to get their kid into law school or yes. something in today's day and age. You definitely, if you want a safe career path for right. your child, one of the options you had was getting them into a priesthood or something like right. that. Right, and a priesthood he got into at the age of 12. He, he, was, he became a priest at the age of 12, which sounds young, but compared to a nearby Catholic church, they had a priest that was four years old. So maybe kind of give you a bit of insight into the state of... <laughs> The Catholic Church uh, during the early 1500s. I, I can't help but like picture. I have pretty young kids, and just imagine one of them like walking around with rosary beads in front of a church while all the adults just kind of sit there and watch. That's I, I just can't imagine yeah. they did a great job. <laughs> yeah, Calvin studied at Paris, and he studied hard. And you know, it's crazy to think about, but he would have been listening to the bells ring at the Notre Dame bells that were ringing to celebrate the burning of Lutherans that were happening at the same time. You know, there's, there's reformations happening. There's people speaking out against the Catholic Church, and there are people that are dying because of it. And this was an environment that Calvin grew up in. When his father died, he began to question his life, and he went through some tough questions, had to ask himself the tough questions, and he ended up with what he describes as this conversion experience that led him to become one of the great leaders of the Reformation. And we could go into detail about Calvinism, but we actually want to take this episode in a slightly different direction. If you're looking for episodes about Servetus or predestination or even his legacy in theology, check out our previous episode on John Calvin. So in this episode, we are studying something quite different about him. It, it kind of came across where I found a book called John Calvin, the Statesman. It was written over a hundred years ago, and it went through the life of John Calvin, but it, it was about basically looking at him instead of just looking at the theologian, but taking a step back from all the theology, all important, of course, but saying, like, let's look at who he was as a leader, because, uh, and I'll read a quote from it that got my attention, to omit the, to omit the influence of Calvin on the evolution of Western civilization is to read European history with one eye shut. And what he meant was not so much that just his theological beliefs affected everyone, but how this affected the leadership of the political countries and the churches that formed after him were forever changed in the Protestant movement. So what was his leadership style? What kind of a leader was he? Well, if you remember, we recently did an episode on a man named Savonarola. And Savonarola became the leader of Florence. And for four years, the people overthrew their idols. They burnt them in these giant citywide burns. They were, it was a crazy story. Um, but he did not, he was not very successful long-term and he ended up executed by the Catholic church. This happened just before the reformation. He was just maybe too early, too different. He was a tough one. But Calvin saw a vision for the future where Savonarola failed. He believed that Savonarola had the right ideas that he got close, that you need to take a city and do something with it, but you need to be done better. He originally started in Geneva, but then he was kind of thrown out. So then he tested some more in Strasbourg. And then when he got pulled back and he got married there, and when he got pulled back to Geneva, this is when he became famous because then he goes, okay, we're going to do this again. We're going to build a Christian city unlike the one has ever been seen before, unlike what Zwingli has tried, unlike what everyone else has tried. This is going to be the one that when we're done with it, it will be the model to the rest of the world of what a Christian city should look like. Calvin is remembered as being a theocrat, you know, kind of a bit of a dictator. And there is some truth to that a little bit. But it's important to remember what was happening in Europe at the time. The Catholic Church ruled everything and kings and queens ruled everything else that the Catholic Church didn't run. People had no power whatsoever. When Calvin came to Geneva 
he wanted to change all of that, and he believed men were equal and that no man should be lord over those if he hasn't been chosen, if he hasn't been elected or put into that place by the people, both Presbyterianism and many congregational-led uh, style churches in today's day and age, they can they can trace their roots back to John Calvin implementing that more of a congregation voting style. He also thought that all Christians were in the priesthood of believers, so that meant every Christian needed to be a part of the voluntary work of running the church, whereas the Catholic Church had shut the door to anyone but those who were ordained priests. Calvin wanted laymen helping. He wanted everyone helping. You know, to pitch in, we're all part of the body of Christ. We're all part of how the church runs and operates. Things began to change. We remember Calvin today for his theology, but Calvin actually was more interested in building this city that properly balanced church and state, God and man. He worked tirelessly to give the church authority to discipline those who had sinned in real ways, much like Savonarola before. People were required to go to church and to listen to sermons, to learn catechisms, and to be involved with religious duties. To be a member of the city of Geneva, to be a citizen, one had to sign the confession saying, you, you accept the Reformation-style beliefs as a Christian. This is what you think. This made you a Christian believing the things that Calvin promoted. Now, of course, if you didn't want to be a citizen of Geneva, that's fine. You should go somewhere else. If you were coming from somewhere else and you didn't like what Calvin was teaching, his recommendation, head out. This isn't for you. The church did punish lawbreaking, and lawbreaking could be playing dice, it could be dancing, it could be owning wine, it could be calling your mother, and I quote, a she-devil, and uh, one girl was killed for striking her parents, and this sounds backwards to us tonight, today, I think. We hear all that and we go, whoa, what was happening? He sounds like a horrible human, but we do have to remember that 500 years has gone by since then. Um, for his day, this was actually a step forward, and you, you ask, how could that be a step forward? because everyone was equal under the law. It didn't matter if you were a prince, a noble, a peasant, a beggar, a merchant, it came from an aristocratic family with a lot of money. If you sinned in Calvin's city, you were put in jail, dungeon, the same consequence came to you. There was no partiality in this new system. And to be a part of the church, to accept communion, to avoid jail, you had to follow the rules. No family name, no no writ of nobility could stop it. And that was something that really had never been seen before in Europe, that the law was more important than those noble lines and royal heritages. Yeah, sounds pretty bold. And as you can imagine, um, was kind of rough to get going. <laughs> there, They had some problems. A person from out of town saw how quiet and happy Geneva was, and he said to one of the, the people there, you must be happy to have so much freedom. And the, the Genevan responded, freedom? They just replaced forced mass with forced sermons. But over time, the sermons worked. They had an effect on people. Geneva became intelligent, and he worked hard to train the people of Geneva, how to read, what, how to understand their own faith, how to understand the Bible, how to prepare for ministry. The Catholic Church really did not want laymen to understand the Bible during this era. And Calvin was almost, you know, in, in the opposite side of that argument. He really pushed the Bible on people. He wanted to train the people how to understand and read the Bible. He started an academy at this time that's it would teach thousands of missionaries and help lay the blueprints for future schools. So yes, he may seem like a dictator, but his dictatorship, if you look at, you know, we have the, we have the luxury of looking back in retrospect, it kind of worked. It, it cleaned up the city. And with time, people really did grow to love him as well. 
famous reformers like Melanchthon or Farrell and Knox, they, they really hold Calvin in high regard. What, you know, Troy was talking about Savonarella trying to kind of create this, this utopian city as well and, and how he failed to do so. Calvin, he, he kind of did what Savonarella failed to do. Jiva had become a beacon of the Reformation and his style of church would end up influencing the entire world. Do you think about how your iPhone affects your daily life as a Christian? I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. And this episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast, where we argue about the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life, from DNA tests to TikTok videos. Give us a listen, and this fall, check out our new online seminary course. It's called Theology of Technology, Church and Culture in the Age of Zoom. Find out more at deviceandvirtue.com. You know, imagine you come over from France. You had become converted from the Catholic Church, which you grew up in, uh, but now you were under persecution. You Maybe you grabbed your family and you came out with your life. Maybe you were a young man in school. Whatever your situation was, you were coming over in raggedy clothing after maybe three, four, five days, several days journey, and you get over there, you'd heard about this other land, and, and you might not be coming from France, you could be coming from the Dutchland area, or you know, the Netherlands, you could be coming from Germany, there's so many places under persecution, but you had heard about Calvin, maybe you even saw or read the Institutes a little bit, and you come out of a valley, because that's where you had to kind of come out to get to Geneva, and suddenly you see this beautiful lake, there's this city, it's so cleaned up, it's the people there are quiet, you hear them singing hymns, you hear them practicing catechisms as you walk down the street, um, everyone there at Christianity, re- the Reformation is free. Um, the Reformation rules here. You you get there and you find out the rules are basically got to come to church every day, listen to sermons, and really study your Bible and, and follow these rules and you're going to do fine here. Rules that you as somebody in part of the Reformation, you probably already agree with most of them. Um, common folk, regular people, peasants are speaking catechisms to one another. No one is drinking, gambling, no prostitution, and no one is persecuting you here. They just want to teach you scripture and get you caught up to speed. And if that maybe sounds idyllic to you, that sounds a little utopian or strange, well, it was the world John Knox who would eventually become very successful. If you haven't heard our episode on him in Scotland, um, persecuted and kind of pushed out of England and that Scotland area, and here's that that's where he came into. He took this idea back with him to Scotland when he started what would eventually become Presbyterianism after he spent four years in Geneva. And it was this world and belief. Um, he wasn't the only one. Calvin did such a good job of getting people to take his model, his ideas, and run with them to other places. They would go to the Netherlands and start the Dutch Reformed Church, and it kind of built up, and that would go around the world. Then they took it to France, and they would start the Huguenot movement, and that would also go around the world. They would take it back to England, and these guys would eventually evolve into the Puritans. And before, the Protestants had been about protesting the Catholic Church. We don't like what they're doing. Now Calvin was giving them an idea of something that the Protestant movement could be. It could be a Christian movement that was based more than just what we're tearing down, but also in protesting against, but also about what we're for, that men were created equal and that they needed to be um, righteous and live for something greater. The city on a hill was, it was a little bit of a reality for just a moment, maybe in Geneva. Not perfect. We went through it. It's not perfect, but there was something there. And people now saw themselves as equals. They were worthy of these just higher things that no longer just run by this old system. You can see how America and its founding 
could be deeply influenced by some of these ideas, which really makes sense when you think about it, because two of the three million people who were in America during the Revolutionary War were descendants from these groups that the Calvin missionaries had planted. They were two out of the three million were either Huguenots, Dutch Reformed, Puritans, um, or from Switzerland themselves. So there's, and or Presbyterians, there's direct links to all the ideas that would come about 100, 200 years later back to this moment of what Calvin had hoped to do in Geneva. And even though, again, ways he went about it, we in 2021 or whatever, whenever you're listening to this would definitely disagree with the methods. The model itself was extremely inspirational to the people living at that time that maybe the Reformation could be something really, truly great. Yeah, Calvin, he was not a perfect man. In our first episode, we talk about some of his flaws and some of the areas that we acknowledge that he was indeed human during this era, but this man profoundly influenced the world in his dream to build a city and a place where Christians could safely be. Yet, at the same time, what was at the heart of it all was not a utopia, but a living and preaching Christ. In this sermon, he tells us more about the Christ that he loved so much. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Matthew chapter 27, verses 55 to 60. We have seen above how our Lord Jesus declared the fruit and the power of his death in the poor robber, who surely seemed to be a damned and lost soul. Now, if all those who had previously been taught the gospel and had some taste of it were turned away after seeing the Son of God die, it would seem that the preaching of the gospel had been vain and useless. We know that the apostles had been elected to the condition of being, as it were, the first fruits of the church. One could have thought that this calling had been a disappointing thing that they had been chosen wrongly to such office and estate. For this reason, it is here declared to us that although the apostles had fled and showed terrible cowardice, with St. Peter even renouncing our Lord Jesus and was, as it were, cut off from all hope of salvation, he looked to be worthy to be remembered as a rotten member of the body. Yet God did not permit the teachings which they had previously known to be extinguished and entirely abolished. It is true that St. Matthew puts more faith in the work of women here than of the men. This is in order that we may learn to magnify all the more the goodness of God who perfects his power in our weakness. That is also what St. Paul says, that God has chosen the weak things of this world in order that those who suppose themselves to be strong may bow their heads and not glory at all in themselves. If it were spoken of men and of their goodness and that they had followed our Lord Jesus Christ to death, one would take that as a natural thing. 
But when women are led by the Spirit of God and there is in them more boldness than in men, than in the very men who had been called to publish the gospel to all the world, well then, we recognize that God was at work and that it is to him that the praise needs to be attributed. Now, it is said specifically, these women had followed our Lord Jesus doing him service, which is to better declare the desire that they had to profit by the gospel. For it was no small thing that they had left their households to travel here and there. In fact, it was done with great effort and even with shame from those around them. For we know what the condition of our Lord Jesus Christ was while he went about in the world. He says that foxes have caves and little birds are able to build their nests, but he has nowhere to lay his head. We see, on the other hand, that these women had the wherewithal to feed themselves peaceably and at their comfort. When they followed, they would be without lodging and that they would have to go without food and drink at times. They would be subject to many mockeries and driven away and harassed everywhere. And yet, they rise above all that and bear it with it. And yet, they rise above all that and bear with it in patience. And we can easily see how God had strengthened them during these trials. However, at his death, they still declare the hope that they had in our Lord Jesus Christ. For they are in shock. And they may have believed that our Lord had come to trouble. They could have concluded that he had completely failed. For he had spoken to them of the kingdom of God which was to be restored by his work. He had spoken to them of the perfect bliss and of the salvation which he would accomplish. And where are all these things? We see how these poor women, although they had been shocked and much troubled by not knowing what would be the outcome of our Lord's life and death, and still he allowed them to see that he had not promised them anything in vain. They have waited for the promise of the resurrection, although according to men, they might have believed entirely that it was hopeless at this point. The apostles were not there after all. However, we can see in these women how their faith was trained in order that we might not be troubled beyond measure. For even if, for even if in appearance it seems that we are forsaken by God and if it seems that all the promises of the gospel are abolished, but we must persist. For these women give testimony against us and to our great condemnation if we fail in such moments of trial. Would we say our situation was worse than what they endured? However, they were victorious by means of faith. So then, let us arm ourselves when we are under the assaults which Satan makes against us, that we are armed to meet the blow, and we show that we are supported by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ that although we may not perceive at first glance the fulfillment of what is said to us, we may not cease to rest in him and to bring to him this honor and reverence. For we know that he will show himself faithful in the end. And we need to be tested to our limits sometimes, for otherwise we would be too delicate and our faith would be deadened. Or perhaps we would imagine an earthly paradise and we could not raise our senses high enough to renounce this world. We see it better in the person of the mother of John and James. We know that previously she had been driven by such an ambition that she had wished that our Lord might be seated on his royal throne and that he might have had there only pomp and bravery and that her two sons might have been there as two lieutenants of our Lord. Command, Lord, she says, that one of my sons be at your right hand and the other at the left. What a foolish woman who is mindful only of glory and who wished to see an earthly triumph in her children. Now here is another and very different experience. For she sees our Lord Jesus hanged on the cross. 
and had such shame and disgrace that all the world is opposed to him. And he is even, as it were, cursed by God by hanging on a tree. So we see this, and we are led into such a confusion that our spirits will be astonished with terror and anguish. But by this means, God robs us of all earthly affections. He does this in order that nothing may hinder us from being raised into heaven and to the spiritual life to which we must aspire. And we cannot do it unless we are purged of everything that holds us back on this earth. That, in summary, is what we have to remember concerning these women. The same is also seen in Nicodemus and in Joseph. It is true that St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. Luke speak only of Joseph who came to Pilate, and Nicodemus took courage after seeing such leadership. It is true that Nicodemus was a teacher of great reputation. Joseph was a rich man of property and also a member of the council. However, let us look to see whether there was always in them such a zeal as to expose themselves to death for our Lord Jesus. And indeed, if during his life they have left their houses to follow him like the women did, not at all. But when it comes to death, God moves them and incites them beyond all human expectations. We see that God worked here a strange and admirable change when he gave such boldness to Joseph and to Nicodemus. For they were not afraid of the rage of the mob when they came to bury our Lord Jesus. Previously, Nicodemus had come by night, fearing to be marked with the infamous company of Jesus. Now, he buries our Lord Jesus when Christ has come to the worst possible death. God had to give him new courage, for he had hidden himself before. And no shadows had been dark enough for him, seeing his timidity and cowardice, and only God could correct this vice in him. We can already see how the death of our Lord Jesus was profiting his followers, and that already he then displayed the graces of his Holy Spirit upon these poor people who previously had never dared to make a declaration of their faith. Now not only do they speak by mouth, but what they do shows that they prefer to be thought of as shameful before the world and yet still be disciples of Jesus Christ. Better that than to lose what they had obtained in him namely the free salvation which had been offered them. That is also why it is said that Joseph waited for the kingdom of God. By this word it is declared to us that we are alienated from God and banished from his kingdom until he gathers us to himself for his people. We see how miserable is the condition of men until our Lord Jesus has called them to himself to dedicate them to his father. And if we are separated from this good, then terror and confusion will be upon us. It was a great virtue then to wait for the kingdom of God. For the prophets had declared when the people had returned from Babylon that God would be their redeemer and that there would be a kingdom flourishing in all dignity, that the temple would be built in greater glory than ever, that then they would enjoy all benefits and that it would be a happy life, that all would have rest and that the only concern would be to enjoy God and bless his name and give him praise. That is what the prophets had promised. But what is the condition of the people? They are consumed and gobbled up by their neighbors. They are oppressed. They are harassed. Sometimes there is such tyranny that innocent blood is spilled throughout all the city. The book of the law is burned. They are forbidden to have a single reading of it under penalty of death. Such great cruelties are practiced that it is horrible to think of it. The temple is full of pollution and corruption. The house of David, what has become of it? 
It has entirely fallen, and the state of things continuously goes from bad to worse. So then one must not be surprised if in a people so oppressed and given over to their own desires and lusts, there were very few who retained the true faith and who had not lost courage. And we see that the number of those who endured patiently and who are firm in the faith was very small and very rare. It is said of Simeon, it is said of Anna the prophetess, and it is said of Joseph. But why? In a multitude so great among the Jews in a country so populated, the Holy Spirit sets before us four or five as being unusual and gives testimony that these people Sorry, and gives testimony that those people were waiting for the kingdom of God. But it is in order that we may learn when everything is confused and in despair to have our eyes fixed upon God. And as his truth is infallible and immutable, let us remain firm until the end and let us rise above all troubles, scandals, and perplexities of this world. And however we may groan, let us not cease to aspire to what our Lord calls us to. That is to wait patiently for his kingdom to be established in us. Now, it is also necessary to note what St. John recites before our Lord Jesus was taken down from the cross, namely that they pierced his side to see if he had already given up the spirit. For they had not hurried his death as they had with the two robbers. But seeing that it appeared that he had already passed away, they came to probe him with a blow of a spear. And then they knew that he had died and so the guards were satisfied. Now, it, it is true that this, if the testimony of the law were not added, would seem to us a somewhat cold statement. But St. John wished to give us proof that our Lord Jesus was a true sacrificial lamb, since by the providence and the admirable counsel of God, he had been preserved from broken bones. For it is said in the 12th chapter of Exodus that they should eat the sacrificial lamb, but that the bones should not be broken and that they should remain entirely whole. Why was it important that Jesus Christ should not have his bones broken? For it was a common custom, as we see, to break the bones of men on the cross. They were not going to spare him, and he was even set in the middle of the robbers to be held, as it were, the most detestable, to be remembered as a leader among wicked men and criminals. We see that God was here at work when he held back the hands of the guards and even willed that his son die in order to be preserved and that we might have here an evident sign that it was in him that the truth of this ancient figure had to be fulfilled. So we must notice that the Son of God was preserved from all breaking of his bones in order that we might hold him for our sacrificial lamb who is to preserve us from the wrath of God if we will be marked with his blood. For we must come to this, that if he is our Passover, we must every last one be sprinkled by his blood. For without that, it profits us nothing that it has been spilled. But when we will accept him with this sacrifice, also we will find there the remission of our sins. Knowing that until he washes and cleanses us, we are full of corruption and pollution. Then we are sprinkled by his blood and this besprinkling which is made in our souls by the Holy Spirit. Then we are purified and God accepts us for his people. Then we are assured. Although his wrath and his vengeance is upon all the world, yet he regards us in love and he owns us as his children. That is what we have to remember from this passage. When it is said that the bones of our Lord Jesus were not broken or snapped at all, 
this in order that we may know that what had been declared by a man in the law had been verified in his person. However, it is also said, water and blood came out of his side, and he who saw it has given testimony of it. When we see that water and blood came out, it must remind us that it brings to us our purging and the agreement to wipe away our sins by his sacrifice, as St. John speaks in his letter. It is true that the blood will be able to congeal in death, as that is done by nature, and that with the blood water can come. But St. John declared, though that may be, that God wished to show in the death of his son that it profits us. For in the first place, that by the shedding of blood, he is appeased toward us. As it is said, that no remission of sins is possible without the shedding of blood. For that is why from the beginning of the world, sacrifices were offered. God surely declared that he would be favorable to all poor sinners who would have hope in him. But he wished that sacrifices be added as if he said that the remission of sins would be freely given to men because they of themselves could bring nothing of their own, but that there would be the mediator for repayment. That is how the blood which flowed from the side of our Lord Jesus Christ is testimony that the sacrifice which he offered is a payment of all our iniquities so that we are acquitted before God. It is true that we must always feel guilty of that blood. That is, it is there to humble ourselves and to bring us to a true repentance and to take from us all presumption and arrogance. For though we feel repentant, we are certain that God holds us acquitted and absolved by the name of his Son whenever we come to recognize our faults and offenses. And why? For we believe the sacrifice of his death is sufficient to wipe away the memory of all our transgressions. Now, there is the water which implies cleansing in order that we may be washed from all our spots. Let us recognize that our Lord Jesus wished that the water flowed from his side to declare that truly he is our purity and that we must not seek any other remedy to wash any of our stains from us. That is how he came with water and with blood. And by this means, we have all perfection of salvation in him. When we look closer, we will see that there is a striking resemblance between the blood and the water which flowed from the side of our Lord Jesus Christ and the sacraments of the church by which we have the proof and seal of what was done in his death. For having endured what was required for our salvation, having fully satisfied God his Father, having sanctified us, having acquired for us full righteousness, he wished that all of this might be testified in the two sacraments which he instituted. I say two, for there are no more which are instituted in his word, only baptism and the Lord's Supper. All the other sacraments are only a frivolous imagination which came from the arrogance and foolishness of men. Behold our Lord Jesus Christ, who displays the power of his death as much in baptism as in Holy Communion. For in baptism we have testimony that he has washed and cleansed us of all our pollution, so that God received us in grace as if we came before him pure and clean. Now let us recognize that the water of baptism does not have this effect. How can a corruptible element of the earth be sufficient for the washing and purging of our souls? But it is the water that flowed from the side of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us come to him who was crucified for us. If we wish to experience the fruit of baptism, then our faith may address itself to our Lord Jesus Christ who wishes that we seek all the elements of our salvation in him, doing it without excuses or bending here and there. And then in the Holy Supper, 
we have testimony that Jesus Christ is our food. And under the bread, he presents to us his body. Under the wine, his blood. This is the full perfection of salvation. When we are purified, God accepts us as if we had only integrity and righteousness in us. And so we are acquitted before him of being blameworthy since our Lord Jesus Christ has fully satisfied the price for us. That is how we must benefit from the sacraments, by applying ourselves with all our faith to our Lord Jesus Christ and not turning to anything created at all. That also is how we are to be sure of what was done by the death and passion of our Lord Jesus. Let our memory be refreshed daily by it when God shows us with the eye that vision of the Lord Jesus Christ when out came the blood and water. So this in summary is what we have to remember concerning the saying that the side of our Lord Jesus Christ was pierced. When it is said that the scripture was fulfilled, what it means is that all this has been governed by the secret counsel of God. And although the gods did not know what they were doing, yet God put into effect an execution that he had pronounced both by Moses and his prophet Zechariah. We have already seen the words from Exodus and the sacrificial lamb. St. John adds as well from the prophet Zechariah, they will see him whom they have pierced. It is true that God uses that by figure of speech in Zechariah's case, for he meant the condemners of his word who are hardened in every rebellion and malice. Or perhaps he says, it seems to them that they make war against men who preach my word and that they can hinder them in this way, but it is against me that they fight. And when they so despise and reject my word, it is against me that they fight. And when they so despise and reject my word, it is as if they wounded me by stabbing with a knife, but they will see him whom they have pierced. Yet it was also truly fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, for even in his human body he was pierced. That is how he was declared the living God who had spoken from all time by his prophets, since in his person all that has been promised is seen. Now, it is said that Joseph obtained permission from Pilate for burial and that Christ's body had been given to him for burial. And he had a clean burial sheet and Joseph brought some aromatic ointments, indeed, for a great sum, as it is said by St. John, of myrrh and aloes. And then he buried him in a new tomb, which he had made for himself, which was hollowed out of a rock. In this tomb, our Lord Jesus Christ already began to show the work of his death. He soon was to come into the glory of his resurrection, and God willed to manifest it completely. This is still an infallible testimony, that among so many confusions of what we read in the narrative, which could trouble us and shake our faith, we perceive that God always cared for his only son as for the head of the church and for his well-beloved, not only in order that we might be able to hope in him, but that we might confidently expect, since we are members of his body, that the fatherly care of God will also be extended to us, to each one of those who hope in him. However, one might ask why our Lord Jesus Christ wished to be buried so carefully. For it surely seems that such extravagances as aloes, myrrh, and similar things were superfluous. In fact, what good is it to a dead person that he is washed or anointed or a great parade is made in honor of him? It would seem that this was not in harmony with the teaching of the gospel, where it is said that we will rise on the last day through the incalculable power of our God. So it seems that all such pomp ought to be rejected and forgotten about. 
Consequently, one might judge that Joseph had a foolish devotion, which would tend to cast doubt on the hope of the resurrection. But we have to point out that the Jews had such ceremonies until our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished what was required for our salvation. And that the tomb was for that time just as the sacrifices and washings and lights of the temple and all these other kinds of shadows were. It is true that by all the world the grave is considered to be holy. For God willed that this would be engraved upon the hearts of men. Men may not know the reason for it any more than other sacrifices, but it was a sufficient condemnation when they remained aloof from the truth of God and they corrupted the testimony that he gave them. Yet in their hearts they knew that a grave was a holy place. And this is in order to draw them to faith in heavenly life. Be that as it may, the grave in itself has always been, as it were, a mirror of the resurrection. For the bodies are put in the earth as if to be kept for a time. If there was no resurrection at all, it would be just as well to throw them away in order that they might be eaten by dogs or by savage beasts. But they were buried honorably to show that they would not perish, although they did go away in decay. The Jews had some special ceremonies for burial, for they made use of the grave, and it was to confirm them in the faith of the resurrection. So following what I began to say, our Lord Jesus was willing to be buried according to ancient custom because he had not yet accomplished all our salvation with respect to the resurrection. It is true that the veil of the temple was torn at his death. And by that God showed that it was the end and perfection of all things and that the figures and shadows of the law no longer remained. However, that was not yet apparent to the world. And there is no one who is capable of recognizing that in Jesus Christ all the figures of the law had come to an end. For this cause he still wished to be buried. Now we know that in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, life has been acquired for us so that we should go right to him. We have already said that he has given us two sacraments to serve us as full confirmation. If the manner of burial which the Jews observed were necessary for us, there is no doubt at all that Jesus Christ would have wished only that it remained permanent in his church. But it is no longer necessary that our attention be arrested by these earthly and childish elements. It is enough for us to have a simple manner of burial, leaving these aromatic ointments which do not typify the resurrection, but were given in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we see that St. Paul says, if our life is on high, there we must seek it in faith and spirit, and we must be joined to our Lord Jesus. Let us reach out toward him. Let us not be wrapped up in anything which might distract, hinder, or slow us from being united to him as to our head, since it is said that his body was a temple of God. That, in summary, is what we have to remember about the grave. There is still to consider that he was put in a new tomb, which was not done apart from the particular providence of God. For he could well have been put in a tomb which had been, for he could well have been put in a tomb which had been in use for a long time and filled with other bodies. Since Joseph of Arimathea had his ancestors, and usually in such rich and opulent houses, there is a common tomb for all. But God foresaw it from another vantage point and willed that our Lord Jesus should be put in a new tomb wherein no person had ever been laid. For it also was not at all without cause that he is called the firstfruits of the resurrection and the firstborn from the dead. However, one might say that many have died and have been made shares of life before our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Lazarus had been raised. And we know also that Enoch and Elijah were translated without natural death and were gathered into life incorruptible. But all that depends on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must cling to him as the first fruits. In the law, the fruits of a year were dedicated and consecrated to God when they brought only a handful of wheat at the altar and a bunch of grapes. When that was offered to God, it was a general consecration of all the fruits of the year. And when also the firstborn were dedicated to God, it was to declare the holiness of the line of Israel and that God accepted it for his inheritance, that he had reserved it to himself being satisfied with that people. Also, when we come to our Lord Jesus Christ, let us recognize that in his person we are all dedicated and offered in order that his death may give us life today and that it may no longer be mortal as it was previously. This is what we have to observe with respect to the new tomb, that the tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ should lead us to his resurrection. However, let us look at ourselves. For although everything which should be of help to our faith was accomplished in the person of the Son of God, and although we have testimony of it which should be sufficient for us, Yet in our evil hearts and weakness, we are still very far from coming to our Lord Jesus Christ. And for this reason, let us, recognizing our faults, reach toward the remedy. Let us not lose courage. We see what Nicodemus and Joseph did. Now we have to consider two things for our example in these men. The first is that they are not yet clearly enlightened concerning the fruit of the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is some crudeness and their faith is still very small. The other, that nevertheless in such extreme circumstances they fought against all temptations and they came to seek our Lord Jesus dead to put him in the tomb. They were protesting that they hoped for the blessed resurrection for it had been promised to them and they aspired to it. Since it is so when we experience some feebleness in us, may that still not hinder us from taking courage. It is true that we are weak. And God could reject us if he dealt with us in harshness. But when we experience these failures, let us know that he will accept our desire, although it is imperfect. So let us not fail on that account, knowing that we cannot be disappointed in what is promised to us in the teaching of the gospel. Although we must pass through many afflictions, yet let us look always to our head. Joseph and Nicodemus had not at all this advantage which we have today, that is, to contemplate the power of the Spirit of God which showed itself in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet on that account, their faith was not entirely deadened. Now, since our Lord Jesus calls us to himself, and with a loud voice he declares to us that he has ascended into heaven in order to gather us all together, let us persist constantly to seek him and to follow him. Let us not consider it an evil thing to die with him and to be sharers in his glory. St. Paul commands us to be conformed to Jesus Christ, not only with respect to his death, but also with respect to his burial. For there are some who would be content to die with our Lord Jesus for a minute of time, but after a while, they get tired. For this reason, I said that we must die not only once, but we must suffer patiently to be buried until the end. I call it death when God wills that we endure something for his name. For though we are not at first dragged to the fire or condemned by the world, yet when we are afflicted, there is already a type of death present which we must endure patiently. But because we are not quickly humbled, we must be beaten for a long time, and here we must preserve and persist in patience. 
For as the devil never ceases to plan what is possible to distract and destroy us, so all our lifetime we must not cease to fight against him. Although our condition may be hard and tedious, let us wait for the time to come when God calls us to himself. And let us never cease to make confession of our faith. And in that, let us follow Nicodemus' example in all boldness. When he came previously to Lord Jesus Christ, he hid himself. And he did not dare to show himself a true disciple. But when he came to bury our Lord Jesus, he declared and protested that he was of the number and of the company of believers. Since it is so, let us follow him today in such boldness. And although our Lord Jesus is hated by the world and they hold him in detestation, let us not fail to adhere to him. Let us even recognize that it will always be all our happiness and satisfaction when God will accept our service. Now, one must not be astonished that our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. For it is very proper that he had some privilege above the common order of the church. This also fulfilled what is said in Psalm 16, you will not permit your Holy One to see corruption. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ had to remain incorruptible until the third day, but his time was set and established by the counsel of God his Father. On our part, we have no time assigned except the last day. So let us wait until we have languished as long as it will please God. In the end, we will know that at the proper time, he will find means to restore us after we will have been entirely annihilated. As also St. Paul exhorts us to that when he says that Jesus Christ is the firstfruits. This is to slow the ardent zeal with which we are sometimes too much carried away. For we wish to fly without wings and we are offended if God leaves us in this world. And that at the first sign of struggle, he does not take us into heaven. We wish to be led there in a chariot of fire like Elijah. Briefly, we wish to gain our victories before having even to fight. Now, to resist such silliness and these foolish desires, St. Paul says that Jesus Christ is the firstfruits, and we must be satisfied that in his death we have a sure pledge of the resurrection, for his majesty has not yet appeared. So our life must be hidden in him, and we are waiting there like poor dead persons, that while living in this world we are like poor lost people. Nevertheless, It is proper for us to suffer all that until our Lord Jesus comes. For then our life will be manifested in him when it is the proper time. This is what we have to note with respect to the tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until we come to the end, which until we come to the end, which will show us that not only has he satisfied us for all our sins, but also that having obtained victory, he has acquired for us perfection of all righteousness by which we are today acceptable to God and are able to have access to him and to call upon him in Christ's name. And in this confidence, we will bow in humble reverence before his holy majesty, praying to him that he may receive us in mercy, that however poor and miserable we may be, we may not cease to have our refuge in his mercy. Although from day to day we provoke his wrath against us and though rightly we deserve to be rejected by him, may we wait nevertheless for him to show the fruit and the power of the death and passion which his only son endured and by which we have been reconciled. And may we not doubt that he is always father to us, especially when he will do us the favor to show that we are truly his children. May we declare this as fact 
in such a way that we ask nothing except to be entirely His own. For He has bought us at such a high price. And rightly, we ought to be fully reformed to His service. We are so weak that we do not know how to save ourselves of even one hundredth of our duties. But still, He worked in us by His Holy Spirit because always the weakness of our flesh carry with them so many struggles and fights that we can only drag ourselves along. We drag along instead of walking properly. Oh, may it please Him to strip us of all this so that we may be joined to Him. John Calvin points out something, maybe, uh, you know, he said something that the work of what was done on the cross was already working on the women and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea uh, on their lives and changing them, getting them bold. You know, we always focus on how the disciples run away, but I love how Calvin puts the focus less on who ran away and more on who was there during that moment. The women who had already probably suffered on this life were still not willing to give up on the hope of the resurrection that Christ promised and Nicodemus, you know, how, as Calvin points out, who came to him in the dark, now boldly coming to him in the light. How what Christ was doing on the cross, the resurrection that was to come, you can see the hints of it already happening in this moment at the cross. And in this moment, he does a really good job of just going through the whole thing. And I especially encourage you, if you haven't listened to the Passion of the Christ that we did last year, combine these two sermons, listen to both of them as you go into Easter. And if you listen to this weeks or months or years later, uh, as you approach different times in your life, think about the cross, remember it, and remember that it is the cornerstone of our faith. It is what matters most to us. We should never tire of listening to and learning more and thinking more about what it is Christ did for us that day on Calvary. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Chips Ross. Chips Ross currently serves in Fresno, California as a pastor of Westwood Baptist Church. As a child, he assumed he was a Christian because he answered all the Bible questions correctly, but God used a drama of D.L. Moody to make him realize that he did not know Jesus personally. Chips has an English degree from the Master's College and a Master's of Divinity from the Master's Seminary. He and his wife, Christiana, have four school-aged children. If you are not currently plugged into Revive Thoughts and everything we're doing here at Revive Studios with Revive Devos and Martyrs and Missionaries, we highly recommend follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, uh, get involved with our different places we are at on social media. It's a great way to follow us and keep up with what we're doing. And you never know, um, there are things that happen. We do church history trivia nights. We have, um, uh, we were in a contest recently. Our show was voted up above uh, Cultish, which is a podcast that most people, you know, a lot bigger than us, but we had a very dedicated fans and a lot, a lot, a lot of help from different people in that area. Um, and that was really cool. So there are fun things that happen on our social media pages that you might miss out on. Give us a follow and try to keep up with us there. We, we always appreciate hearing from you all and uh, seeing that. And remember to leave a comment on this episode when you find it and see it out there. And your comment might be read in the next episode of Revive Thoughts. Thank you for listening. And we hope you have a wonderful Easter. If you are listening to this more in real time, the week it's coming out. If not, hey, I hope you have a wonderful Easter the next time Easter comes around. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
This episode is brought to you by the Device and Virtue podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. On Device and Virtue, Chris and I argue about the wrongs and rights Christians face with technology in everyday life. From smartphones to evangelism chatbots. To that selfie stick Adam shouldn't have bought. It's nice. Subscribe at deviceandvirtue.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.